0: It's June 9th, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you, as always, from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. On this edition of the NACOcast, something a little different. A trip to the forest. Musikalische Malerei, literally, musical painting. We have so many examples in the orchestral literature where we find composers depicting specific landscapes through the use of instrumental color and the evocative character of various instruments. There is perhaps no greater example of this genre and no example more studied and argued about than the second movement of Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. The composer himself titled this Seen by the Brook, and it has traditionally been understood to be a depiction of the poet or composer alone in some idyllic forest grove conversing in some way with the gentle ripple of a stream and the singing of birds. The music is achingly beautiful and stands alone without benefit of further study. Yet, a careful dissection of the musical painting can illuminate a great deal about the programmatic content and perhaps Beethoven's ultimate intent. recently come upon a provocative study of Seen by the Brook by the eminent American musicologist Owen Jander. Dr. Jander, who was recently awarded the Ira Brilliant Lifetime Achievement Award for Creative Scholarship in Beethoven Studies, makes a cogent argument that what transpires in this music is a conversation between Beethoven, the Brook, and the birds, a prophetic conversation that speaks to the composer's fears and apprehension about his growing deafness. I'd like to take you through some of Dr. Jander's observations and hopefully give you a deeper appreciation for your next experience of the Pastoral Symphony. So, to begin, let's jump to the most obvious example of Beethoven's musicalische Malerei. It's at the ending of the movement, where Beethoven introduces the nightingale, the quail, and the cuckoo, using the flute, the oboe, and the clarinet. This is indeed a famous passage, a great example of musicalische Malerei, and one of the great representations of birds by any composer. So, how close did Beethoven get? Well, why don't we listen to actual bird calls? First, the nightingale, then the quail, and then the cuckoo. I think Beethoven came pretty close with the quail and the cuckoo. Well, perhaps the nightingale is a bit more problematic. But of course, the point is not to stretch the flute beyond recognition. And Beethoven himself said about this music that it is, quote, more a matter of feelings than of tone painting. Dr. Jander makes a fascinating argument that there's a cryptic design to the rhythms in this conversation of the birds. But we'll come back to that later. There is another bird song that appears much earlier in the movement and is, in fact, far more developed, a greater part of the musical material. It's the goldfinch. Let's isolate that. Let's listen to the goldfinch flute all by itself. Interestingly, Beethoven wasn't the first to use this representation of the goldfinch. Owen Jander argues that Beethoven would have known one of Vivaldi's earlier ventures in tone painting, the famous flute concerto in D major known as Il Cardellino or Il Giardellino. This is how Vivaldi depicted the goldfinch. return to Beethoven. Listen here to a more muted Goldfinch, now in the violas. And a little later, between bassoon, clarinet, and first violins. Dr. Jander argues that the goldfinch, as nature animate, is speaking here to the composer. But between the modulations of keys and the use of brighter or darker instruments, the bird's voice is not always easy to hear. This is an important idea that we'll come back to. If the goldfinch is indeed the living conversationalist with the composer, it's the brook itself that represents nature inanimate, And Dr. Jander shows how the brook is represented, from the gentle flow to the ripples of a faster-moving stream and even to the play of waters among stones, and finally, to the calm surface of much deeper water. Let's listen again to the opening of the movement. You can hear in the background the gentle flowing of the brook as cantabile eighth notes in 12-8 time. Let's listen to this with solo violin. Now the water begins to flow a bit faster. Here, the water splashes over some mild rapids. If you listen very carefully, you'll hear in the violas and the second violins a depiction of waves splashing on the edge of the brook. Later, we find the brook opening up into deeper and much calmer water. It becomes silent, and Beethoven sinks into the calm, deep, and perhaps gloomy key of G-flat major. Jander argues that in this hushed tonality, the brook is communicating a stillness and a silence, perhaps the silence of the deafness that is so increasingly overtaking Beethoven. Of course, this tone painting is not entirely Beethoven's invention. Let's return briefly to Vivaldi for a wonderful example from Spring of the Four Seasons, To begin, here's the poetry that inspired Vivaldi. And so, on the pleasant flowery meadow, to the delicate murmuring of leaves and grass, the goatherd sleeps with his faithful dog at his side. Here is the murmuring of leaves. Now, in the full example, listen to how Vivaldi gives the faithful dog his due in the violas, which is, incidentally marked, play very loud and very rough. The violin solo, floating above, Floating above the murmuring leaves and the barking dog is, of course, the dreaming shepherd. Well, in a sense, Beethoven has taken this kind of conversation between man, animate and inanimate nature, to the highest possible level. As a bassoonist, I've always been challenged by one particular phrase in Seen by the Brook. Listen to this passage. Is this a motive of hope? Well, Owen Jander thinks so, and he goes on to point how Hector Berlioz borrowed this very theme in his own pastoral scene from the slow movement of the Symphonie Fantastique. You can hear how Berlioz, as poet-composer in a, his own composition, followed much of Beethoven's implied narrative. Well, with these examples in mind, let me take you through the whole movement of scene by the brook and outline the structure and perhaps the deeper meaning of the music, at least as Owen Jander sees it. In a secluded forest, Beethoven sits by a gently flowing brook and expresses his rapture in a breathless phrase here in the first violins. And now in the second violins, the violi and celli, we hear the brook rippling with increased activity. And the first violins, trilling on high B flats and Cs, represent the chirping of birds. Now Beethoven, contemplating the scene wherein nature seems to speak to him, pauses in thought. And the first violins give us the first of what Owen Jander calls the betraktogen motive, the meditative or contemplative mood. Now in these measures, we follow the composer through a gentle modulation to the key of F major, a tonality which speaks to a sense of growing optimism. Here it is, F major. and now the first violins give us a faster-moving stream while the flute plays a more optimistic melody taken here by the bassoon and now we hear the birds trilling in a more excited fashion the composer savors the optimism but the sound of the brook recedes and the birds fall silent he returns to contemplation For you musicology students, we are finishing the exposition now and moving into a development section. Soon a new state of joy will emerge, as the contemplative theme in the violins takes a slight twist. And now, in the flute, the bright call of the goldfinch in G major. And the Goldfinch theme becomes a singing duet for flute and oboe. The mood begins to turn more introspective. And now we move towards the new key of E-flat major and a more subdued mood. The loss of the symbolic bird from the prominent flute to the well-covered violas is an important detail. But we recall Beethoven's own words in the Heiligenstadt Testament. He said, but how downcast I felt When someone standing alongside me heard a flute in the distance, and I heard nothing. And now we enter the emotional center of the movement, a pensive withdrawal, first to the remote key of G-flat major. The goldfinch has disappeared, and the brook is practically inaudible, the water so deep and slow. The moment is extraordinary. In the cave, almost imaginably distant, C-flat major, the atmosphere hushed. It's as if the whole scene is covered by the veil of Beethoven's increasing deafness. And now, a subtle modulation from C-flat to B-major, the composer's spirits almost instantly revive. We hear the brook flowing in the lower strings. The quick trills in the first violins indicate the birds chirping with a new energy. And now, the goldfinch transformed into a trio of bassoon, clarinet, and violin leaping from instrument to instrument, branch to branch. thus begins a recapitulation of the opening exposition. But some of the music of contemplation is omitted, and the chirping of birds seems a little more absent. In Owen Jander's understanding, what we have here in this music is the consciousness of the composer as arch-romantic figure, the artist in the embrace of nature, drawn into a meditation in a world of his own creation. Here's that theme of hope. You remember the one that Berlioz borrowed for his Symphony Fantastique? Listen to the second violins and the violas here. A little splashing of water on the rocks. bird trill in the first violins. Second violins, violi, celli, smoothly flowing water. We begin to be pulled away from the home key of B-flat towards E-flat major, and soon enters this trio of nightingale, quail, and cuckoo. For Owen Jander, there is a cryptic message here. The cryptic key is in the rhythmic spacing of the oboe, imitating the quail. Three dotted rhythms, well-spaced, followed quickly by a truncated, shorter edition. Three long and one short. Now the violins, followed by bassoon and then oboe, offer a brief quote from the Bechtrachtungen motive: a moment of complete acceptance and resignation the composer accepts the message of the trio of birds and the movement comes to a calm and quiet close for owen jander the long 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 short rhythm in the quail and the cuckoo is a cryptic reversal of the short 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 long rhythm of the famous fifth symphony motive and what we therefore understand to be fate Ba, 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 ba. If he's right, Beethoven's conversation with the brook and the birds eventually leads to the bird trio as prophets of fate, and the fate implied is Beethoven's inevitable and impending deafness. What helps to substantiate Jander's argument is Beethoven's own words, scribbled in the notebooks along with the sketches for Scene by the Brook. He wrote, One leaves it to the listener to figure out the situations. Jander also notes that Beethoven's pupil, the great pianist Karl Czerny, recalled that, according to Beethoven, the call of a goldfinch had given him the theme of the C minor symphony. Well, this is nothing short of ornithomancy, wherein birdsong is interpreted as divine or prophetic messages. Jander goes on to examine examples of the bird as prophet in the works of Richard Wagner. Above all, he argues that in the world of late 18th century art, especially portrait painting, cryptic and symbolic communication was commonplace. They were devices intended to tease the viewer into inquiry about the life of the subject. You know, musicology is an interesting discipline. Performing musicians are often a bit skeptical of studies of music, which rely on reductive thinking and intellectual constructs. But the really great musicologists can lead us to a much deeper and more meaningful listening experience. So let me close with Owen Jander's own words. When all is said and done, what is intriguing about Beethoven's scene by the brook lies in the various levels at which this music can be experienced. On one hand, this second movement of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony can be listened to, of course, as purely abstract music. And at that most important level, obviously, it stands as the great work of art that it is. On the other hand, Beethoven instructs us that this movement is to be experienced as a scene by the brook that depicts the picturesque sounds of the brook with concomitant calls of the birds of nature. At the end, we are to be aware that these birds are now the nightingale, the quail, and the cuckoo with all their traditional associations. Can this symphonic movement then be experienced at an even more subtle and meaningful level? Such an experience merely requires that we listen to this music with ears informed by history. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these ideas. Those of you who want to read more can find Owen Jander's article, The Prophetic Conversation, in the musical Quarterly, published by Oxford University Press. I'd also like to refer you to a wonderful article by Professor Jander entitled, Music, Putting the Program Back in Program Music, it's available through a quick search on the New York Times website. Thanks today go to my colleagues flutist Joanna Gaffre and violinist Jessica Linneback, to Naxos Records for their kind permission for us to use a recording of the Pastoral Symphony by Bela Drajos and the Nicholas Esterházy Sinfonia, and finally to the Free Sound Project for making their Bird Calls, available for download. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Until next time, this is Christopher Millard for Canada's National Arts Centre Orchestra. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to necocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, with Marjolaine Laroche and Jean-Jacques von Vlaselaire. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast, N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. So until next time, this is Christopher Lard for the New Media Team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa.